This is Louisiana Considered on WWNL in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, we're going to the wedding of Figaro and Susanna. Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro opens the season for the New Orleans Opera. And we'll hear from independent gubernatorial candidate Hunter Lundy. But first... It has been six months since a catastrophic tornado ripped across the lower Mississippi Delta and into Alabama, killing at least 23 people and injuring dozens more. Communities caught in the path of the storm are still rebuilding. But as the Gulf States newsroom's Maya Miller reports, some residents fear they're being left behind. Anna Burnett stands watch as a group of workers nail sheetrock into the studs of what used to be her living room. Her house is one of four on her street in Silver City, currently being repaired. This entire side right here was gone. Bedroom, bathroom, part of the kitchen was gone. Visible through a newly installed window pane is a temporary FEMA trailer. Burnett and her children have been living there for months. She says it's been a good solution, but also the only one she was offered. I wish the mayor and the county would do more. As you see, nothing's getting done. But a load of dirt, they did bring us a load of dirt. That's it, (laughs) that's it, a load of dirt. She'll use that dirt to even out the ground near her damaged home and to fill holes left behind by uprooted trees. But Burnett says she's frustrated that no officials have come to check on them. Instead, she's relying on the goodwill of volunteers. Andrew Kimber is coordinating those volunteers who are helping rebuild Burnett's home. He isn't from Silver City, but Belzona, a town that's about seven miles away. He says it's been difficult to watch as neighbors try to figure out their options to rebuild. Many here don't have a lot of money or adequate homeowners insurance. Federal relief is available, but Kimber says it's not enough. FEMA can only help you to $41,000. $41,000 is not enough to build a house. It's not even a pitch in the pail. He's referring to the maximum limit of housing assistance under or uninsured residents can receive from FEMA after a major disaster. But Kimber also says manpower has run out too. When things happen, people come and help out. When you get to two to three weeks in, everybody gone. Then that's when people really realize that it's just how to fend for themselves. In nearby Rolling Fork, the steady stream of work trucks and volunteers seen in March has slowed down. A donation center where people could come to find things like clothing and canned goods closed nearly two weeks ago. This leaves residents to clear the shelves at the Stop and Shop or Dollar General. Milk, bottled water, and meat are low at both. Tracy Harden owns Chuck's Dairy Bar, which was destroyed by the tornado. The whole roof was gone off the building before he could close the door. She Um, and eight others ran into the walk-in freezer, which protected them from flying debris. Six months later, she's still shaken by that night. I try not to. Just try not to think about it. Uh, It's hard to talk about it. She's Um, been working out of a small food truck, first offering free meals right after the storm hit. Now she's selling breakfast plates and things like fried chicken and sandwiches. She's glad to have some income toward rebuilding her restaurant now that people are moving back and the community is coming alive again. I'm trying to give hope and trying to give love and just constantly show that. And even through all of this, um, find the good in every day. 
and her restaurant is coming along. She's got her slab down, and her plumbing and the building pieces have arrived. She's just waiting on contractors to come back and put it up. To her, the sooner Chuck's Dairy Bar can reopen, the sooner she can bring joy back to her community. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Love is in the air as the New Orleans Opera opens its 2023-24 season with Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. It's one crazy wedding day in the garden, chock full of twists and turns. New Orleans Opera General and Artistic Director Claire Buravac joins us now with all the juicy details. Claire, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thank you, Diane. I really appreciate being here. It's great to see you. Same here. Wedding days can be hectic for a bride and groom, but would you say that this one is maybe over the top for the parties involved? Yes, absolutely. I would say so. Uh, Poor Susanna is so excited to get married to her fiancé Figaro, but the Count is trying to have his way with her before or after or even during the wedding. So the entire plot is full of the machinations of trying to keep Susanna away from the the Count and give him a taste of his own medicine uh, so that he uh, learns what it is to... um, to be in love with his own wife and not with his servant's fiance. Wow. This is billed as a musical comedy. Where is it set? And tell us more about the storyline. Who is Figaro and who is his bride-to-be? Well, this takes place in Seville. We were introduced to these characters with last year's Barbara of Seville. The Count is uh, married to Rosina now, and Figaro, who uh, arranged that marriage, is now going to have his own wedding to Susanna. Figaro is the servant of the Count. Uh, Susanna is the servant of Rosina. And um, the Count, uh, you know, is is having a, a wandering eye, as we shall say, and his eye has landed on Susanna. We're trying to keep the true lovers together, remind the Count of why he fell in love with Rosina in the first place, and give everyone a happy ending by the time the opera is over. So what would you say are the major themes being explored? Well, you know, love is a big part of this story. Fidelity. You know, Mozart was very interested in these characters. Uh, He, with his librettist, uh, Lorenzo da Ponte, really fleshed out uh, these characters for really kind of the first time in all of opera to make them human beings, real people, and not just stock characters that we saw in the Baroque era. And so we see all of the ups and downs, the foibles, the mistakes, and the the true pain of love that's dying, the excitement of true love found at last, the thrill of a young boy who's just through puberty and how he's in love with every woman he sees. You know, it's just all these characters at different aspects of their life. And we see them all in this one 24-hour period where so much happens and we get to cheer for the young lovers coming together at the end. Is there revenge and forgiveness involved here? The revenge is mild, one might say. There's a little bit of trading capes, trading disguises so that the Count 
thinks that he is uh, wooing his Susanna and he's really wooing his wife instead and vice versa. Um, so so the revenge is, is mild, but the forgiveness is true at the end. Everyone comes together for a beautiful moment. You know, there's a, a moment in Act 4 where the Count realizes what he's done and he says, Contessa, perdona, please forgive me, Countess. And many people uh, ascribe this to be some of the most beautiful couple of bars in all of opera. It's an amazing moment in act four. And then they all sing of love and, and forgiveness and and then let's party, which we New Orleanians <laughs> can relate to, right? Absolutely. When this opera first premiered, it was controversial for its time. Why was that? Well, the, the source material was Beaumarchais uh, and, you know, the, the French Revolution was right around the corner and it was really the servant class uh, tricking the, the ruling class, the aristocracy. And, and that was something that the aristocracy didn't really want to see on stage. They didn't want to read the play. Beaumarchais' plays were banned for a little while. You may remember also the movie Amadeus. Um, there's a, a part where the emperor says to Mozart, too many notes. And that's this opera, Marriage of Figaro, too many notes. But, <laughs> you know, they got it past the censors. It got on stage. And, you know, those who were in the know about what was coming in way of revolution, uh, they saw what Bromoche was doing. Some of it was a little cloaked, shall we say, for the aristocracy to see, but it, it really played a big part in what was to come in France. Yeah. Who is singing in the uh, title role? Oh, I'm very excited about this cast, Diane. Thank you for asking. Figaro is a young uh, bass by the name of Anthony Reed. He's one of many who are making their New Orleans opera debuts in this show. His bride-to-be, Susanna, is Katie Bryan, who has Louisiana roots, but this is her first time on our stage. The Count is Theo Hoffman, who has made this a signature role for him abroad, mostly. Uh, he works a lot in Europe. And his Countess is Laquita Mitchell, who was last here to portray the role of Josephine Baker in our production of Josephine uh, just about two years ago, I believe it was. Those are the highlights, and there's a lot of other local and out-of-town guest artists in this cast. And it truly is an ensemble cast with everyone working together to uh, make an opera in which the sum is greater than all the parts. Now, is this a good opera for beginners? Absolutely. Yes, it is. You know, it's one of those operas where the tunes that Mozart wrote have really come into the, the public vernacular. You know, you, you hear these tunes and you recognize them immediately, whether you're an opera lover, whether you're a classical music lover, or, or whether you just watched cartoons or the movies, you'll hear this music. There's some very famous arias. Of course, like all of our operas, we have English captions above the stage, so you don't need to know a word of Italian to come to the opera and understand everything that's going on on stage. It's fantastic music, very entertaining, and no one dies in this one. So uh, if you're a fan of happy endings, this is a great opera. Yeah. And why would you say that the opera is so popular to this very day? You know, there's uh, one can't discount the genius of Mozart. I, I think that is a, a lot of it. There, there are many, many people who say that this is their desert island opera. You know, if they could only listen to one opera for the rest of their lives, it's Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, uh, people call it a perfect opera. 
the plot is is very tight it's complicated but it it, it flows very very um easily it takes place within one day 24-hour period all the characters are are fully fleshed out and real people on stage and as i mentioned the music is just sublime you know we open up the curtain opens on figaro measuring the space for his wedding bed in his new bedroom and and with his his bride susanna trying on her wedding veil and and the action just never stops from there yeah new orleans opera general and artistic manager claire borovac thanks so much thank you diane the new orleans opera presents mozart's the marriage of figaro Performances run Friday, September 29th, and Sunday, October 1st at the Mahalia Jackson Theater. More info at neworleansopera.org. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Louisiana's primary for the governor's race is just around the corner, so this week we are re-airing the rest of our interviews with the race's top candidates. Today, we bring you a conversation with Hunter Lundy, the race's sole independent. Lundy is a trial lawyer from Lake Charles and an evangelical Christian. In debates, he sided with Republicans when it comes to banning abortions and bills targeting LGBTQ plus people. But on fiscal issues, he's far more liberal. Lundy says he supports the working class and would spend more money on social programs in schools. Back in June, the Times-Picayune, New Orleans Advocate's editorial director and columnist Stephanie Grace spoke to Lundy about why he believes Louisiana needs a bipartisan leader. Today, we give that conversation a second listen. So you've got a somewhat unusual profile for a gubernatorial candidate. You're a very successful plaintiff lawyer, which is something often often associated with Democrats. And you're also an evangelical Christian, which is maybe more associated with Republicans. And you're not a member of either party, actually. You're running for governor as an independent. So, you know, for the listeners who are just getting to know the candidates, can you talk a little bit about your political philosophy? Maybe start by telling us where you fall on the spectrum from liberal to moderate to conservative. Well, I'm the people's candidate. And, um, you know, I read Jim Wallace's book years ago. It's called God's Politics. And he said the right side of the Republican Party doesn't have it right. And -hmm. the left side of the Democratic Party or the Democratic Party doesn't have it. And so um, I am a, um, a, a guy about justice. You know, I believe that we're to do justice, love mercy and walk with humility. And you, you call me a successful plaintiff's lawyer. I call myself a successful lawyer. I've represented a lot of people that were poor. I've, let a, I've represented a lot of wealthy people. I've represented a lot of homeowners. I've represented a lot of people that were subject to the BP oil spill, which were a lot of businesses, both large and small. So I've, I've had a, a 
you know, across the mainstream law practice for years. Yes, I've represented communities that were impacted by environmental contamination. So I've done those things. You know, the media wants to label me whatever they want to label me. That's fine. But I am uh, for the people of Louisiana. And so we have some issues that need to be improved on. And I've gotten the uh, God's given me the ability and gave me the auction at the end of 2021. This is what I should do. And so I'm I, I'm leaving the courthouse and I'm going to the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And it distinguishes me from the group. Have I traveled the world? Have I traveled with a, a South African evangelist for a few years? Yes, I did. Never leaving my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is the law. My wheelhouse is helping people. And that's what I'm going to do. Kind of on that topic, there's a school of thought you sometimes hear in Baton Rouge that one of the things holding Louisiana back is its legal climate, which some say favors plaintiffs over businesses. Uh, do you think there's anything to that? Well, I think the billboards, excessive billboards, aggravate people. Mm-hmm. Is there something wrong with our legal climate? No. Um, you know, that is nothing more than political jargon that's coming out of one person's campaign who used to be chief of staff for, <laughs> for Jindal and chief of staff for Vitter, who, um, uh, you know, we faced a period of time when we had a governor that didn't, did not enforce the law. So 80%, and you can go to the master plan for coastal re- restoration, 80% of the problems we have in our, our wetlands today are due to the non-cleanup by all companies. And mm-hmm. so they turn it into a political rhetoric. So I've pointed out already at the at the coastal uh, restoration venue last Friday night at the oil and gas uh, at the Capitol Museum that you know uh, we gotta be we gotta be accountable. I'm about right. accountability, and so I don't care if you're small business, big business, an individual, whatever. Our system is designed such that we should be responsible. Well, I mean, to be fair, it's not just the one candidate. It is something, you know, Mike Foster said back in the day, people like that. They're, um, so, so does this mean you support the uh, lawsuits against the oil and gas industries out of some of the parishes? I support people being accountable. And yes, the parishes have to get these um, this saltwater intrusion stopped. Uh, if we want to do coastal restoration, we've got to get it stopped. If we want to preserve our coastlines, we got to get it stopped. And, mm-hmm. and so there is a master plan. Let those who are accountable to do it. I mean, I said last Friday night, I said, yeah, I was on the team that got the $8 billion for coastal restoration, and they only got a billion left. Mm-hmm. But there's a dozen more parties that are responsible for the mm-hmm. problems that we have across our state line. So, yes, they need to be accountable. Um, and I know all of the, uh, the other candidates are, are reluctant to talk about it because I guess it's it's. Um, who supports them or who gives them money or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but I'm just a, I'm just a guy that wants uh, the truth out okay. there and want people to come. And I want, I, I've made it clear there has to be transparency. And so we need to have a website where people can follow the money. Who has the contracts? Who's doing the work? Where does the money go? When are they paid? What timeline is in place? And so I understand there's people that don't like that and there'll be endorsements and games being played over money. And Mm -hmm. so I love Louisiana. I love our sportsman's paradise. I want my grandchildren to enjoy what I enjoyed growing up. And so we want it fixed. And that's kind of who I am. um, (laughs) Um, Moving on to other issues. Uh, 
looking back when Governor John Bell Edwards was elected in the campaign, he said the first thing he'd do is accept Medicaid expansion. And that's what he did. Uh, what's the first thing you'd do if you'd become governor? Well, we're going to try to find the money to continue the Medicaid expansion for mm -hmm. right now. But we're going to go in and we're going to tackle this uh, this childhood issue in our schools. We have got to let teachers teach and we've got to let children go out to play. We've got to fix the problems that we have in education first. When we do that, it affects crime. It mm -hmm. affects the economy. It affects poverty. And, you know, nobody wants to talk about these issues. And, yeah, they want to label people because they talk about them. Well, we're, you know, when you pull up a newspaper article and you read that the number one state in the nation is, is Louisiana for poverty, then we got a problem. But we know that education can fix poverty. Education can reduce the incarceration rate. We know that, that when our prisoners, 85% of the prison population goes back into the community. If they go back into the community with a high school diploma, a GED, it helps them. I'm telling you, if there's a job in a home for a prisoner, when they get out, they'll never go back. Right. And so we have what, to change what we're doing in those. So what, what kind of policies are you talking about? Because obviously education, we've heard, you know, it's everything from the culture wars to literacy to. Um, I'm, I'm talking about funding childhood education. 80% of a child's brain is formed yeah. by the time they're three, 90% by the time they're five. We only have 15% of our school public schools getting the money to help parents with three and four-year-olds. Mm -hmm. Now, we pick it up at pre-K. We have got to do that. We have got to find grant money. we got to allocate money. we got a $45 billion budget. You talk about accountability. We're going to yeah. look where the money's being spent, and we're going to put it in the areas that we know will best serve the people of Louisiana. And, and so, of course, you know, the advocates for this were pretty disappointed in what came out of the budget this year, despite, you know, the surpluses. Well, that's, I mean, I'm disappointed taking the 52 million down to 12 or 14 on mm -hmm. Head Start and, and early childhood because, you know, my mother was a kindergarten teacher. She started in the Head Start program. She later taught in college. My sister's a retired kindergarten teacher. I understand it. My daughter is a, is a teacher. She's taught in high school. She's teaching in college. And so I know a little bit about education. I've heard mm -hmm. it all my life. And so we know that we have to reach these children young. And we can change that. When we do that, they do become literate. Mm -hmm. And when they're literate, it matches right up with incarceration. Those that are incarcerated, many of them are illiterate. So right. we stop them. And then we got this, this money about this child care money. This is about helping single moms mm -hmm. who have to work uh, all the time. We got 800,000 single parents in Louisiana. What are we going to do? Ignore it? No, we can't ignore it. We got to lift them up. And by mm -hmm. doing that, I mean, I said, yeah, we got to pay our teachers more. We need the money. Pay them more. The only debt I would forgive would be a teacher's debt that they borrowed because that would even be 20% more of income. So I right. would forgive that. And so we got to let our teachers teach. We got to let our children play. And we got to fix our roads. It's nice to speak with you. Same to you, Stephanie. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest from the Gulf States newsroom, Maya Miller, New Orleans Opera General and Artistic Director Claire Borovac, 
and the Times-PQ-Cune, the New Orleans Advocate's editorial director and columnist, Stephanie Grace, for her conversation with independent gubernatorial candidate Hunter Lundy. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.